we'll get started. We, um, we're wrapping up our study on the Lord's Supper that we've been going through on, on the book written by Richard Barcelos called The Lord's Supper, um, More Than a Memory. Um, and you can gather from that title that he, um, uh, he wants to show us that it's how it's, um, well, more than a memory, but more than anything, how it is a means of grace in our lives and uh, presently how it's a means of grace to us. Um, I've, and I can probably speak for my brother, uh, Stephen, who's helped go through this, um, this teaching that it's been a true blessing for me and, um, and I'm, for you as well, right, Stephen? Yeah, and I hope it has been for everyone else. So what we're going to do this morning is it's going to be largely a big part of it is review. But we're going to also touch on some, some takeaways, if you will. Uh, so let me start off with a quote from Richard Barcelos in his book. He says, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace through which Christ is present by his divine nature and through which the Holy Spirit nourishes the souls of believers with the benefits wrought for us in Christ's human nature, which is now glorified and in heaven at the right hand of the Father. This is very much a reformed view of the Lord's Supper, of uh, the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. That's really, truly what makes this um, a means of grace. His presence is a spiritual presence, right? That's something we've learned. Most, most of us, if not all of us, that walked into this study, I think, understood that to a degree. You know, we, we never, we, we understood already that the, the, the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation um, is wrong. That it is only a spiritual presence of Christ that is the Reformed teaching of the body and blood of Christ, conveying the death, the benefits of the death of Christ to us. Well, where is Christ now? He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And so this grace is mediated to us by the, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's what we have studied in detail these past several weeks. Uh, I want to quickly go through some key texts. Um, one of them, probably the, probably the most key text in terms of showing that this is a means of grace in our lives, uh, as Barcellus argues in his book, probably the most explicit verse in all of scripture that shows it is a means of grace is in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So clearly the supper is a means of grace. This cup of blessing it is a, a true blessing to the recipient, to the communicant. Who takes, uh, who participates and celebrates in this meal? Um, we learned about how yeah, it's a participation in the blood in the body. 
a sharing, sometimes translated as communion, which is why we often refer to it as communion. It is a participa participation in the blood of Christ. And because it is a participation in the blood of Christ, the context there is clear. This is a present blessing. And for Paul's original readers, when they read this and when it was read to them, they understand the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation? This is not something that is just something that was done a long time ago. It is every time that the Lord's Supper is celebrated. It is a present communion in present benefits. One of Barcellus's uh, key goals in writing this was to help us understand just how is the Lord's Supper a means of grace to us. We understand and that it is a means of grace. We, we believe it, that it is. We're taught that. But how is it a means of grace to us? Well, it's, it's in those present benefits that are communicated to us through the Spirit. And what are those benefits? It's those that were gained through his death, through Christ's death, uh, the body and blood of Christ. This is a, again, um, uh, we are enjoying Christ's presence in a spiritual sense. So we are spiritually partaking of the body and blood of Christ as we take the meal here. Um, it's really, these benefits are conveyed through his death specifically his death, not his death plus the resurrection. Now the resurrection indeed, what did that do? Christ being res his resurrection gives us hope that we ourselves will be enjoy the resurrection someday. Of course it was fulfillment of scripture, him being resurrected, and it also showed God's approval of the work accomplished and completed by Christ by his death. These benefits, again, that we are, of course, reminded of and enjoy as we partake in the Lord's Supper. All right, so how are these present benefits brought to us? Ephesians 1 verse 3, that is another key text that we covered, which reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, when you see that verse, I want you to, that second part of the verse, where it says, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. These blessings are heavenly blessings. They're not just run-of-the-mill blessings. These are heaven-born blessings. And they are spiritual blessings, which means they are given by the Spirit. They're given by the Spirit. Spiritual blessings given by the Spirit. Heavenly blessings. They are, uh, that's the quality of them. Okay? Some of these blessings that we realize and are reminded of is um, from an, he, Barcelos hit on this several times, from an eschatological perspective, an end time view of things. We see and are reminded of a final victory that awaits us. Besides the victory already secured through Christ's death. But we're also reminded of a final victory. And, and, and glorification. 
Yes, the resurrection gives us that hope and promise. Um, another benefit is uh, a, a believer tastes of that world to come. We have a, a taste of it. Physically, we, we, we are reminded through our senses, but we will get to someday drink this again in heaven with Christ. There is a bond also that's being reminded and communicated here between the believer and our exalted Savior. And that is um, brought about through the Spirit and His work. So we're reminded that as well. So when we are enjoying and celebrating the Lord's Supper, our senses being um, enhanced, if you will, being uh, awakened, if you will, just by the taste of the bread and the, and the wine. Um, yes, we are reminded of what Christ has done, but we're also spiritually partaking of the body and blood of Christ. And we're also reminded that this is Trinitarian, and we'll touch a little bit more on that here in a little in a minute, but it's it's the way that verse starts out, blessed be the God and Father. So this is from God the Father, based on the work of Christ, applied and brought to us by the Holy Spirit. Okay. That's Ephesians verse 1, verse 3, or chapter 1, verse 3. Another key text that uh, Barcellus hit on was a little bit later in Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 and 17, which reads, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Whenever you often read Paul, not just Paul, but you're reading scripture in general, but when they, there's the, this, the way the, the evidence and the argumentation is laid out, it's, and this, and this, and this. You, you got to keep a mental note of this thing, the way it tracks. With power, through his spirit, in your inner being. It comes to us through his spirit. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. The, this verse starts out, Paul talking about, he bows his knees before the Father. This is prayer. Prayer is a means that God blesses, that the Father blesses. And we're changed because of prayer. God uses that. It's these blessings again are, are procured, brought to us by Christ, what he has done, but it's ministered to us by the Holy Spirit. So prayer is part of the supper. We always pray during the supper, We're, you're encouraged. Now, if you remember how that we do this every week, you're encouraged to prepare your hearts after you have your time of prayer to go back to your seats, to prepare your hearts. You're, you're in prayer, and then the minister himself, Aaron, or I, we will pray. Prayer is a huge part of the Lord's supper, and that's one of the things that Barcelos wants us to remember and understand. 
So the Father answers and blesses through Christ by the Spirit. So these truths that are spirit, spiritually brought to us and how we are, it's a present blessing to us. Partaking of the divine nature of Christ, this, this spiritual partaking, it shows us how the supper is a means of grace. And one of the proofs that he used, that Barcelos used to back up his teaching um, was he walked through some reformed documents, went through some catechisms, didn't he, and some confessions. He, the Heidelberg, the, the Westminster, and the Second London Baptist Confession, of course. He focused on these, on the, the confessions and their catechisms, and how they taught this truth. And there are important issues that he talks about um, that we need to focus on, and he brings up three of them. I want to bring them up as a bit of a review again with us. How the supper is a means of grace. And like I had mentioned earlier, the supper, the Lord's Supper is Trinitarian. We see the Father blesses us by sending the Son to procure redemption. That's what he did. Christ's work for us. For us. He did this. He did it because he loved his father first and foremost. But he did it for us, this work. So the father blesses by sending the son to procure redemption and all its benefits and by sending the spirit to apply those benefits. Christ said, it is beneficial for me to leave so that the spirit will come. He applies these benefits to us, to our inner being. We seek the Father in prayer during the supper, like I just mentioned. We seek him in prayer because he answers prayer. It's a means of grace. It's another means of grace. Joined in with the Lord's Supper, which is a means of grace. And that's how we seek the God to bless us and we pray for that and he does and he does the, the second thing that important issue that Barcellus wanted us to remember is that it is robustly pneumatological well that means it's it is brought to us by the spirit okay it is very much wrapped up and bound in the work of the Holy Spirit all right and it's important that we understand that and study it. Uh, just understanding the Holy Spirit's role, one of his arguments was understanding the Holy Spirit's role helps us understand how the supper is a means of grace. You know, because we're taking a, if you're trying to, to bulk up and gain weight by taking the Lord's Supper, you, that's, a, that's foolish. There's nothing there in terms of calories right? It's not a, that's not anything what it is. What is it? Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Well, we're commanded to clearly. That's why we do it. We're obedient about it. But even to answer the questions that we'll get to in a minute in terms of 
why we even do it every week, is we, by God's grace, see that it is a blessing to us to partake of the Lord's Supper. And to understand that it is um, the, the Holy Spirit's role in this helps us understand how he mediates Christ who is exalted in heaven down to us, okay? Um, I want to uh, read some, some stuff by Sinclair Ferguson, excellent book that he wrote on the Holy Spirit. So just kind of put your, it's a bit of reading, so I'll try to not put you to sleep. So try to, to try to pay attention here. Okay. Um, so in the upper room, Ferguson writes, in the upper room where there, there was the last supper of Christ and his disciples, Jesus gave his disciples the new covenant cup of fellowship with God. All right. That's where it was instituted, the Lord's Supper. Later in the garden of Gethsemane, Christ received from the hand of his father, the cup of judgment, didn't he not pray and ask the Lord to remove that from him? But he willingly took that cup of judgment. So he received from the hand of his father the cup of judgment and covenant curse. He took those threats upon himself. Christ's appeal, again, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, it alludes to the cup of divine judgment of which the Old Testament prophets had spoken. In drinking the cup, Jesus came under the divinely appointed curse of the covenant. Dying in darkness, in hunger, nakedness, poverty, thirst. He was overwhelmed by the experience of being the cursed one who was hung on a tree. He felt himself forsaken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. After his resurrection, what did Jesus do? He showed, one of the things he did is he showed his hands and feet to the disciples. This is truly me. Look at the scars. It is with the crucified Christ, now risen, that they had fellowship. And continue. He was recognized in the breaking of the bread. Remember the road to Emmaus. He's talking to them. They don't know who it is. He reveals himself. Say, this is all about me. And it wasn't until he broke the bread that their eyes were opened. And then he wasn't there anymore. The breaking of bread. The Lord's Supper. He continues, the fundamental dynamic of God's covenant is operative. God takes the judgment curse to his own heart. Those who believe receive instead of the covenant blessing through faith, which is in essence communion with Christ, Christ crucified, Christ risen, and Christ exalted. It should be clear now why the role of the Holy Spirit is so vital in the Lord's Supper. Only by understanding the Spirit's work, can we avoid falling into the mistakes which have dogged both Catholic and evangelical misunderstandings? So, so what are the Catholic misunderstandings? Besides transubstantiation, 
they believe that is a means of grace as a standalone means of grace that just taking the Lord's Supper and no prayer, no, no word involved, nothing, just actually physically taking it conveys grace. So it's, um, it's not a standalone means of grace apart from the word of God. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. That's one of their, their misunderstandings. And then there's an, a, a common evangelical one, which is why the subtitle of this book is It's More Than a Memory. Okay? Uh, a common evangelical misunderstanding is a bit of Zwingliism in the sense of it's just simply a memorial. That is, it's nothing else. We're just reminded. And I'm sure you may have witnessed that sometimes growing up, taking the Lord's Supper in some churches, that it's just nothing more than a memory. It is that, but it is more than that. Okay. Ferguson continues. Um, it is not by the church's administration. As again, you're just taking it conveys that special grace. Um, in, 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 a, in and of itself. It's not by the church's administration or merely by activity of our memories, but through the spirit that we enjoy communion with Christ. Again, Christ crucified, risen, and exalted. For Christ is not localized in the bread and wine, nor is he absent from the supper as though our highest activity were just simply remembering him. Again, it's more than a memory. Rather, he is known through the elements by the Spirit. There is a genuine communion with Christ in the Supper. Just as in the preaching of the Word, he is not present in the Bible locally. You know, he's, Christ is certainly preached in the Scriptures and taught, but he's not in the Bible. Just as in the preaching of the Word, he is present not in the Bible locally or by just by believing it's there, but by the ministry of the Spirit, so is he also present in the supper, not in the bread and wine, but by the power of the Spirit. The body and blood of Christ are not enclosed in the elements since he is at the right hand of the Father, but by the power of the Spirit we are brought into his presence and he stands among us. Church, this is a means of grace. As we spiritually partake of Christ and brought into his presence in this way. Um, I want to continue here for a second. Um, let's see here. In the supper, the spirit comes to close the gap, as it were. To close the gap between Christ in heaven and the believer on earth, and to give communion with the exalted Savior. And in the supper, then, we commune with the person of Christ in the mystery of the hypostatic union, how he's fully God and fully man. We do so spiritually through the power of the Spirit. So Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Yes, he is God, and he's therefore everywhere. But through the power of the spirit we are brought into communion with Christ as he is exalted at the right hand of the father in heaven so the work of the spirit 
this is a very Trinitarian um, view of understanding the Lord's Supper. All right, number three on our, our thing. The Supper views God's word as a primary means of grace. So, prayer is in it. We pray, which is a means of grace, and the word is part of it, which we should view God's word as the primary means of grace, even from the view of enjoying the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not, again, it's not a standalone ordinance. It's not a standalone ordinance. It does not preach itself. It needs to be explained. And how do we get that explanation? Through the Word of God. Through the Word of God. It, its efficacy is dependent upon the written Word of God. It must be explained. It must be preached and taught. So the Holy Spirit, he instructs through the word about what Christ has accomplished. All right, some implications, some practical and pastoral implications. First, it's, it's more than a memory. It's more than a memory. I think we hit on that pretty hard. Uh, one last quote here. I think from Barcelos, he says, though it is a reminder of a past, it is more than that. Through the supper, because it is a means of grace, purchased grace, redemptive grace, sanctifying grace, all this grace is ushered into souls, special delivery from our exalted redeemer by the, by the Holy Spirit. All right. Again, very simply, it's more than a memory. Um, some recap here on Reformed teaching on the Supper. Again, Christ is not bodily present. He is really, the way it's described in our confessional documents, he is really and truly spiritually present. Really and truly spiritually present. And we see this. He's present in his divinity. In his spirit, Christ's spirit himself. And power and efficacy of what those benefits that he, he wrought for us in his death. And we are made partakers of Christ. We get to see that in a tangible way as we take the Lord's Supper. We're reminded of what scripture teaches us, that we are partakers of the divine nature. We partake of the Son when we have its beams of light and heat darted down upon us, we can feel the warmth of the sun. We, in a sense, partake of the sun in that way, okay? And although we, not, we don't have the bulk and body of the sun put into our hands, so we partake of Christ in the sacrament when we share his grace and the blessed fruits of his broken body, though we do not actually eat his flesh with our mouths. That was someone that Barcellus was quoting uh, in his book. I can't remember who that was. Uh, so Jesus feeds the souls of, of his people through this means of grace. Um, and so we need to know this and we need to be reminded of it often. All right, our attitude at the supper. Okay, that's another implication here. We need to consider our attitude. Self-examination is expected. Okay, we're 
It's, we read it when we partake and uh, take the Lord's Supper. We read that text that Paul writes, and we're reminded of it, of the fence and how we should be examining ourselves. And if, if you read that, let me read in it's verse 28 in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Paul, if you look at just the context of what he's writing there, he expects that they're going to be examining themselves. I recall how earlier in the chapter, Paul, he's admonishing them about divisions that had popped up around the table. You remember that? The divisions that they were dealing with? He was not happy. He was not happy. In 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 18, he writes, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. You know, some, he writes, some had something to eat, some had none, they had nothing. He talks about some getting drunk. Don't you have houses to do this in? This led them to drink the cup and break the bread and, and break and eat the bread of Christ in an unworthy manner. So Paul expects them to examine themselves. Now he gives them instruction to do that. I want to read though something on this because this is I think sometimes we can take that self-examination too far. Malcolm McLean he writes, quote, "Paul does not expect self-examination." to result in a person not partaking. Do you need the means of grace of God in your life? If you are struggling in sin, yes, we do. Paul does not expect this to result in a person not partaking. His comment is, let a person examine himself and then and so eat. Paul anticipated that an unworthy Christian would make the necessary amendments immediately. That's why you're reminded to confess your sin in your seats before the Lord. Deal with your sin. Barcelos, he, con he continues, he writes, In my experience, this verse is often used for individuals to examine, for instance, how many times they read their Bible that week, or how long and fervent were their prayers in the recent past. And if, if they fail that test, a form of self-excommunication is applied and the supper is not taken by that person. For some, this may even be viewed as an act of piety and reverence. I'm not going to take it in, you know, because of that, I'm extra pious because I'm not perfect, okay? Though we ought to read our Bibles, though we ought to pray fervently, uh, and privately, I, he writes, I do not think that is what Paul had in mind. I rather think that since no one reads their Bibles and prays perfectly, instead of being an argument not to take the supper, it's just the opposite. He says, I agree with Michael Horton when he says, the supper is a means of grace for the weak, not a reward for the strong. 
because it is a means of grace for believing sinners, though seriousness and reverence and awe are certainly appropriate, and they are during the Lord's Supper, joy and hope ought to have their place as well because we are feasting on Christ and we're further tasting that the Lord is good. So, yes, we need to deal with our sin there and there and then in your seat when you partake of the Lord's Supper if there's sin that you, you need to confess. The only admonishment that we often give is if you refuse to repent of that sin, that known sin, and you're going to hold on to it despite. If you're going to have that, set, set, that attitude about Christ, what is that saying when you partake of his blood and body? All right, another implication. We ought to seriously think about its frequency. So Mar Barcelos makes this argument. He says that many say that since the supper is sacred and it's so holy, which it is, then taking it too often, it's just going to trivialize the ordinance. Now, of course, we don't want to see this trivialized, do we? We don't. But that's what they think. You know, we're going to take it too often and it's just going to mean less. Like somehow absence makes the heart grow fonder of the Lord's Supper. Is that how we think of grace that we need? No, it isn't. He makes this argument. Prayer, reading the Bible, preaching. Aren't these also sacred acts that God blesses? But no one argues that doing this weekly, and some every day, even multiple times a day, no one argues that that trivializes those things. But the argument is made against the Lord's Supper. There is evidence even in the early church that they practice it weekly. Have you all heard of the, one of the early church writings called the Didache? Yeah, okay. Um, it was kind of like an early church manual. And point, um, I don't know how, they, how you talk about it, if it's chapter 14.1 or what, but 14.1 of the Didache. And by the way, the Didache is not very long. It's not very long to read it. Again, it's like a church manual. But this is what it says. It says, on the day, which is the day of the Lord, gather together for the breaking of the loaf and giving thanks. The early church practiced it weekly. Um, I read some guy, and I didn't get to, I couldn't find the resource that it was being quoted here my, in my own search. But he, uh, the man was saying that it's sometime around the 5th century where the weekly practice kind of falled away, fell away. So, all right. Um, and then one more implication. We ought to highlight the links that the supper has with the past, present, and future. Yes, we do understand there is a past blessing in looking. At, he says, do this in remembrance of me. So we are remembering. Our memories are enacted. We're looking back at redemption accomplished. And we're thankful for that. And presently, presently, the cup of blessing that we bless, again, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ and in the body of Christ? So we are looking 
presently at redemption being applied. Looking back at being accomplished, presently we're looking at pres uh, redemption being applied. And then from a future perspective, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death and, until he comes, right? Until he comes. We're looking forward. Again, when Christ instituted this, the Lord's Supper in the upper room, he said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It is appropriate, brothers and sisters, as we are partaking of the Lord's Supper, to think of that and have joy from it. It's a pledge of more glory to come, Barcelos says. All right, so I want to close here with a quote from the very end of the book. Um, it's the words of William Kiffin, uh, who was a leading 17th century English particular Baptist. Right? So one of our Baptist forefathers. Um, and he wrote, while arguing for the priority of baptism before the Lord's Supper and the life of the believer, this... this um, 17th century Reformed Baptist, he describes baptism as the sacrament of spiritual birth. So that's what he said the baptism is. It's the sacrament of spiritual birth. I think you can see that, right? Um, raised again to walk in newness of life. And the Lord's Supper as the sacrament of spiritual nourishment or, or growth by which believers are spiritually fed. So that's what we get to enjoy, brothers and sisters, every Lord's Day. The sacrament of the spiritual nourishment or spiritual growth. Partaking of Christ.